0: The rain in Spain was mainly on the plane.
1: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at BlueBox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgemo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgemo.com and check them out. Be paid for this podcast is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of WebStorm. Whether you're working with Node.js or building the front end of your web application, WebStorm is the tool for you. It has great code quality and code exploration tools and works with HTML5, Node, .co, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, Harmony, Less, SAS, Jade, JSLint, JSHint, and the Google Clojure. Check it out at JetBrains.com webstorm Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 77 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, there. Jameson Dance. Hey, friends. AJ O'Neill.
2: It's Amelia, AJ.
1: I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And before I introduce our guest, I just want to make a quick announcement. Tomorrow, as we're recording this, so when you get this episode, it will be last Friday, is my Freedom Day. It's the day I got laid off from my last full-time job. And went freelance. And so, in honor of that, I'm putting together a video. I've called it Going Rogue. Yes, I know that there's a political thing around that. Whatever. Anyway, I called it Going Rogue. You can get it at goingroguevideo.com. And it's basically uh the first year of me going freelance. I just talk through uh, how it all went, the mistakes I made, the things I learned, the things I did right, and uh, just give general advice to anyone who's looking to uh, go freelance, or if you're interested in some of the challenges that come with that, it's a video that I'm putting together to kind of explain that. So um, like I said, it's free. You can get it at goingroguevideo.com. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I'm also excited about Freedom Day. So anyway, um, We also have a special guest today, and that's Alex McCaw.
0: How do you do? Thank you for having me.
1: Now, you've been on the show before, but it's been almost a year. Do you want to introduce yourself again?
0: Well, um, I'm mostly a JavaScript programmer. Uh, I've written a few O'Reilly books, one on JavaScript web apps, one on CoffeeScript. Uh, It's called The Little Book on CoffeeScript. Uh, I used to work at Twitter. I worked at Stripe, and I'm now a freelance. Oh, cool. So today is my freedom day too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> awesome! So um, we brought you on today to talk about monocle.
0: Yeah, that's right. The um, it's basically a hack and use uh, alternative, but from a technical perspective, it's kind of interesting as well. H- how was that? Well, um, it's a custom JavaScript web app and uh, a custom JavaScript MVC rather. And um, and I do a bunch of preloading and caching optimizations to try and make it as fast as possible. Uh, So if you check it out, uh, monocle.io, you should see it should load uh, pretty much instantaneously. Especially the next hit that it receives, everything will be cached.
1: That's really cool. I, I know
3: you've written a fair amount about how you made it fast and some strategies to that too. And that's a huge point of debate between client-side and server-side rendering, right, is how to make the first load fast. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you did to do that?
0: Uh, yeah, sure thing. Um, I'll uh, elaborate on my uh, blog post. Uh, my So my blog post was called Time to First Tweet because at Twitter the key metric was the time taken between someone like hitting enter when they're going to twitter.com and actually seeing the first tweet on the page so that was a key metric and that's basically what we optimized for and we actually um uh we we actually rewrote the entire stack to try and optimize for that metric and uh but there's a lot of fud around javascript web apps because javascript web apps can be extremely fast on the initial page load as well not just when you're using them Uh, because Historically, everyone thinks, oh, it's going to take a few seconds to load, but once it's loaded, then everything's rendered client-side. It's going to be quite fast. But actually, you can make the initial load pretty fast as well. And uh, you, and I basically go through all the bottlenecks like database drivers. Uh, that's actually one of the biggest bottlenecks on uh, the server side and also the database. Basically, just you've got to do as little as possible uh, in the first request. And then I go through all the networking stack, uh, how you basically make sure everything is cached, everything is optimized. Uh, and then I lastly, I look at the uh, client processing speed, which actually is actually one of the most um, important things. You can actually do the most tuning uh, at the, on the client and try and uh, c- keep a, the render and repaint times as low as possible. So what was the
3: biggest, or what would you say is the biggest speed-up? Does it depend on your site, or is there one thing you can really look at that will that will probably take up most of the time
0: well for me it's kind of embarrassing um, but I just added a uh, rack deflator which adds gzip, gzipping to um, every request and that just had the biggest impact of all that was like two or three times uh, impact um, everything else was a kind of incremental impact
1: did you just say rack or using rails on the back end
0: Oh, no. I'm using uh, Sinatra.
1: Sinatra? Okay.
0: Um, So basically, I built everything now in Sinatra and uh, CoffeeScript and this MVC framework. And I'm trying to, rather than just release another MVC framework, I'm trying to push uh, back some of the things I really like about it to Spine and Backbone and that kind of thing. That's
3: a really interesting idea. Um, I feel like there's some fatigue, framework fatigue maybe. I swear every week there's a new framework coming out and my full-time job is not to like learn each new framework so i just can't i can't care anymore like Mm -hmm. i don't know so that's a really interesting approach to if you have some really good ideas to try and get them adopted by something people are using instead of i guess that's like trying to shoot the moon right you're going for the the big gamble that if you release your whole framework everyone will switch to it which is probably less likely than people using something with your ideas added into it that they already use
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely, and they've already got a big brand and a following. Uh, it makes more sense for the open source ecosystem. Um, having said that, uh, I'm I'm definitely a hypocrite. I love reinventing the wheel, and I love tinkering about with MVC frameworks, which is why I don't use anyone else's.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so which MVC framework are you using on this? You mentioned uh, Spine. Is it Spine?
0: No, it's it's just a it's just a custom one that basically. It takes the best bits of spine, best bits of backbone, and it does some interesting things on the client. Uh, So you can uh, basically, let's say you have a record, that record can be resolved later. You don't need to worry about uh, the asynchronous nature of the client-server relationship. You can just assume everything is synchronous and then it'll basically figure stuff out for you down the road. So there's a, a, there's a bunch of nice little uh, techniques that it uses, and it's also one of the reasons that, that Monaco is pretty nifty. It's pretty fast.
1: <laughs> so I, I don't completely understand. Um, you said that you can just assume that everything is synchronous?
0: <laughs> yeah, so um, let's say you uh, ask for um, a person with ID 123. Uh, a person instance will be immediately returned, uh, but that instance will actually be a decorated promise. Now, that promise, if uh, if that person has already been fetched before, then that promise will be resolved immediately because the data is already cached on the client. But um, if it's not uh, being fetched, it's not cached on the client, then it will be uh, fetched from the server and resolved when the network request finishes. So you only really need to finish the resolution of... Uh, an, in, an instance when you uh, want to retrieve data from it, which is usually when you're rendering it. Uh, so I just delay rendering until the, the instance has, uh being resolved basically when that promise has been resolved.
1: So, oh, well, I'm thinking about all the different pieces that go into this and you know, your, uh, your post time to first tweet. I mean, I just scanned it real quick while we were talking um, cause I, I didn't know that that would be on the quiz, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> um, it's really interesting. How do you, I, I know I don't want to get too deep into the back end because that's not what the focus of this uh, show is. But is the data really coming back that fast then? Or does that promise just kind of put a placeholder in place that makes it appear to load quickly?
0: Uh, so so you're definitely like limited by uh, the, the speed of the network connection and also the, the time of the server response. Um, uh, and there are things you can do to speed that up. But, uh, for example, for the monocle, almost everything here is preloaded. And then when you scroll, you've got infinite scroll. Uh, but basically, uh, the whole sidebar is preloaded, and then when you click on an item, uh, the comments are loaded in asynchronously. So
1: preloaded in the sense that when it sends back HTML, it's sending back some cached version with that information in it?
0: Oh, no, preloaded is in when you uh, first access the site it'll basically if you have a look at the source of the, uh, the app it's basically calling the setup.js file and uh, that that's kind of key that you keep the preloading of the data uh, in a separate javascript file rather than if you uh, just like insert it in json in the page because you basically want the initial index.html file to load as fast as possible because then the browser can go through and crawl all those other resources in there, and it can call your setup.js file, and you can add the like defer attribute onto that, so that will be, uh, won't basically block any of the other resource loading. Uh, so basically, you're trying to get all these resources loading in parallel, and you're preloading the data on the first page load.
1: Hmm.
0: And the other thing I added uh, to this was SEO. Uh, so uh, there's always this FUD that uh, JavaScript web apps can't have good SEO and it's complete rubbish. You can add SEO in like 10 minutes to most JavaScript web apps. And there's a blog post about that as well. Um, but basically, you take advantage of um, a spec that Google added um, called um, the Ajax Fragment Spec. And this this is kind of geared towards um, uh, it's the hash fragment in the URL but you can basically uh, kind of coerce it into a push state world so this is
3: the, the thing that allows Google to parse like client side rendered sites right I, I've heard of it I don't know a ton about it do you want to explain a little bit more about how that works
0: sure uh, well if you, you can check it out if you go to uh, Google and you type site you'll see everything in there um, it, it is straight from the site so basically it's been indexed properly uh, and the way it does that is, um, on the, on the page is this meta tag, and this meta tag is the name of fragment and the content of this apostrophe. And that basically tells Google that, uh, this is to use the AJAX crawling specification instead of their normal crawling specification and, uh, append this escape fragment parameter to, uh, the page URL, call it again and basically I try and detect that if there's been an escape fragment parameter and if there is then I serve up content specifically for uh, the spider and uh, that content is just pure uh, HTML uh, and it's basically the same data that you see when you're uh, looking at the the JavaScript web app but uh, it's just specifically for a robot
3: That's super cool, yeah I did what you said and put it into Google and there's Plenty of results. So your that's server has to provide that uh, HTML, then.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you if you if you type in, uh, go to a monocle URL and then t- uh, put the parameter underscore escaped underscore fragment underscore, then and uh, refresh the page, then it, it'll serve up um, a data that's specifically for um, uh, the bot.
2: So I was watching a Google SEO talk on on one of the Google Tech Talk channels on YouTube. And the guy was saying that you don't necessarily even need to do that because the Google bot, at least, you know, if you have some sort of push state or, or a fragment or something like that, it'll wait a second for JavaScript to execute before it indexes.
0: Yeah, so this is what I thought as well. Uh, it may be the case, but I did a bunch of tests around this to try and see uh, what was going to be picked up, what wasn't being picked up. And I just found that um, just a pure JavaScript web app wasn't being picked up very well.
1: Is, is there a blog post or anything that explains how you're doing that SEO stuff?
0: Yeah, there is. Uh, again, on my blog, It's uh, if you go uh there is a, um, a post called SEO in JavaScript web apps.
3: So I have a kind of a different question, and it's more about the content of the site than the tech of it. What led you to want to make a Hacker News clone or, or replacement?
0: Uh, well, it was an interesting technical problem, but also I was kind of just sick of... Um, of the community and hacking news, and, use. and <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I'm laughing because I feel the same way. Anyway, go ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. And and I'm just kind of uh, being the fairly pretentious chap I am. I just thought, well, why not make my own community? <laughs> and so uh, I don't know if I've bitten off more than uh, I can chew, but but the, there's some great content on there, and the community is slowly gathering together. I don't know if it'll ever be as hack- big as hacking news is, but at least it's nice (laughs) are
3: you doing i mean that that's a social problem right partially from the growth but i don't know yeah i don't know exactly what causes it but it's definitely not a technical problem or at least to me Um, Uh, that's right yeah so are you doing anything to to solve the social problems or are you just trying to like make a new group and hopefully the toxic people in the old group don't come over
0: Uh, So, yes, I am doing some stuff to solve social problems. Uh, One of the things is you connect with your Twitter or your GitHub account, and that's the only way to sign in. Uh, And you have to be invited to join. So it's invite only. And the people you invite kind of reflect upon uh, their contributions reflect on yourself. And if someone's banned, then that's it, they're banned. Like, they can't sign up under another account. Um, because it's invite only and it's connected to the Twitter. So, uh, those are kind of the steps that I made to try and ensure that the community, it remains a really, really friendly and positive one. But it also, there's no doubt about it that it does affect, um, uh, the, I mean, how many the users on the site, it kind of affects, um, the growth rate. Uh, there's no doubt about that. So it's, it's just going to grow really slowly. Uh, and we'll see, I guess, see if it takes off one day.
1: Mm-hmm. So you basically get two shots. You can sign in with a GitHub account, then with a Twitter account, and then you're done.
0: Yeah, you can. Well, you can sign in with your Twitter account. Uh, well, uh, and then you have to get an invite from someone, basically. So okay. you can
3: you can sign in, but you can't post or vote until you get invited. Is how it works.
0: Yeah, pretty much. All the all the uh, any basically uh, changes to the any comments, uh, any new posts. That is all. Um, uh all invite only
1: that's awesome i I do have to say that uh i I really i have some issues with the community on hacker news most most of it just centers around there are a handful maybe more than a handful of jerks on there that just you know anything that means anything on there you know there's some constructive discussion about it, and then there're the handful of people that just ruin it so. Anyway, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I do want to kind of get back to the, the technology on this, though. I mean, everything comes up so, so quickly. Um, are, th- are there any other tricks other than just, you know, you know the, the delayed deferred promise, decorated promise that you did and, and things like that?
0: Um, well, for logged out users, everything is, is cached. And so nothing has to be dynamic for logged out users. For logged in users, obviously, uh, there's some dynamic stuff. Like you know, if if you uploaded a post, then then that is information that's specific to you can't be cached. So there's that, and uh, there's this other tool that um, I've been using. It's called Google Website Optimizer. Again, it's linked to uh, in that blog post. And this is this is something that actually Chrome are going to deprecate the tab in uh, in Google Chrome called in the Chrome Inspector called uh, audits. They're going to deprecate that and they've just got this web service now. And it's actually really good. You just put your web app in there and you uh, just hit enter and it'll tell you everything uh, that's wrong about your web app and how to make it faster, basically. Um, I'll uh, I'll post a link and we can put it in the show notes. That'd be sweet.
1: So how much of the work to, to make it responsive and things did you have to do on the, on the front end versus the back end?
0: Uh, it's about half and half. Uh, it's definitely a bit tuning both. For another app I'm doing, uh, I'm actually putting everything in Redis and holding everything in memory, so the server responds incredibly quickly. And if you need that kind of responsiveness, then uh, then I, I'd recommend that.
1: That's really interesting. So so basically, nothing's hitting your. Say you have a, a SQL-based backend, you know, Postgres, SQLite, MySQL, something else on the back end. It's essentially cached in Redis and then just pulled out and served up.
0: Uh, that's right. Um, there's this other, I, I'll, uh, if you don't mind, I'll, uh, talk about it a little. Um, it's called sourcing.io. Um, and it's, uh, uh, an app for basically sourcing engineers. Um, again, um, it's built with this uh, new JavaScript web app framework and, uh, and I hold there's uh, two million engineers in there and I hold everything in memory. Um, so, uh, basically you can, the, the, the server responds, uh, extremely quickly. Uh, you don't have to, uh, worry about that kind of latency. Most of the optimization actually occurs on the client side.
3: Crazy. So when you're talking about holding everything in memory, that's basically eliminating the need to go out to a database, right? So that's uh, a large source of your server IO, or, or
0: do you mean in memory, like in Redis? Uh, I mean both yeah you're, you're right you have to I mean you have the network latency to, to contact the Redis server but um, uh, it responds a lot quicker. The other problem I had was uh, most uh, traditional databases are really bad at uh, managing large offsets so when you're uh, for example there's a big table in this app and you're scrolling this table and the offsets may be like uh, maybe like two million. Uh, and so uh, your traditional Postgres database has to uh, scan through all these records one by one and um, uh, and to find the offset that you specified and that takes ages whereas uh, Redis you c- has some au- awesome little utilities uh where you can store uh, an array in um, in Redis and then you can basically ask for um, specific offsets and it doesn't matter how big the offset is it's always returning. In one time.
1: Oh wow! How so cool. there's kind
3: of a broader theme that's happening right now that I wanted to talk about. Um, this is JavaScript, Java right? And we're talking about how to make specifically JavaScript-heavy client-side rendering apps fast. But still, we're spending lots of time talking about the server, um, and and it seems like that's a huge part. Even if you're doing client-side rendering, like that's not just magic sauce you sprinkle on your app to make everything super fast automatically. Do you feel like there's room for just strictly client side only developers or do you feel like they need to be aware of server side things like this too
0: uh, I personally uh, think developers should be uh, full stack and uh, and, and I, I yeah I can't imagine just knowing javascript and and uh, not being uh, ha- clued up on the server because if, I mean if you want if you want to have a really um, F- fast like, first experience, uh, like, the initial page load will involve some server tuning. Like, from then on, you can fake it, you can client-side render and preload stuff and have an optimistic UI, but uh, if you're going to speed up the initial page load, then uh, you need to uh, uh, g- get your hands dirty on the server side. So I
2: want to throw in a comment to that as well. I feel like the web... In all of its moving forwards is, is in a sense, taking a step backwards where it seems like you have to know more and more and more to do basic things well. So, like, if you write JavaScript, you know, just considering JavaScript itself, and you do the naive approach of things, it's actually going to run really well because the compiler... Figures out what optimizations you need to do. And, and like, if you put in weird things like plus plus one, or if you do one plus plus, or whatever it is that you do, the naive approach is going to be the fastest according to what Google's trying to do, right? They're, they're trying to get the naive approach to be the one that, that works best. And if you do weird stuff, maybe it'll make it faster, but it probably won't, right? But I feel like web development as a whole is more like assembly where you've got to understand HTTP, you've got to understand the server, you've got to understand CSS, like, you've got to understand so many things. Just like with assembly, you have to understand pointers and hardware, and, like, the naive approach doesn't just work. Does that make sense?
0: It does. I mean, things have definitely got better, and if you are um, just not looking to get that involved, and uh, then you can, then you can use... Uh, there's a bunch of extremely friendly frameworks out there. I mean, imagine what it was like before Ruby on Rails came along. Uh, that was a big uh, turning point for a lot of programmers. And imagine what it was like when you couldn't specify, like, border radius and you had to use images for uh, every corner of the border. So, I mean, I, th- I think things are a lot better than they used to be, but I agree you have to have a lot of uh, memory, uh basically, state when you're programming. Uh, and I think that's the, kind of the, the best programmers I find can basically hold a lot of state in their head or at least enough lookups so they know I need to Google XYZ to do that. Um, uh, that, I think, is is the greatest skill to programming, actually. Amen to Googling. <laughs> but, by the way, I want to say that the, um, uh, the tool that Google use uh, is, is actually not called uh, um, Web Speed Optimizer. It's called Page Speed developers.google.com slash speed slash uh, page speed page speed insights and and that well, you can just enter any URL in there and it will tell you what it looks like on mobile it will tell you what it looks like on different browsers and it will tell you uh, the kind of things that you should uh, be improving like server response time or uh, uh, compressing or caching uh, that you can use to basically make in that initial page load extremely fast
1: yeah, I've been playing with it and it's 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 pretty cool actually. One thing that I'm wondering about is uh you got your uh, JavaScript to be very very performant and responsive. I keep saying responsive. I don't mean responsive design. Anyway, um and we may talk about that in a minute if you know, if you've done stuff with responsive design on Monocle, but how do you how do you test it for performance?
0: I I mostly um I use that tool. I uh I refresh it a lot. And I just try and tweak it, um, and and try and uh, basically look uh, in Google at the network tab and see how I uh, sorry in Chrome at the network tab and see how um, how long each resource takes to uh, load. What are the bottlenecks, and then I take it from there.
1: So
4: that seems pretty unscientific. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, pretty much, yeah.
1: So, so there's no benchmarking or whatever to try and save a few milliseconds here or there. It's you're actually looking at the. The response over the network and things.
0: Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, and ba- basically follow best practices, so you get relatively fast, and then uh, go back in and uh, figure out where the bottlenecks are. Now, I usually find the bottlenecks are something in something weird happening on the server, uh, or you're you're just like some really unoptimized unindexed uh, database query, or I find that you're doing um, way too much rendering on the client. Uh the key the key to make the client fast is uh try and do as little rendering as possible and um and to uh, when you do the, do that render, make it all at once. So you want to do as little painting as possible.
2: So with the page speed tool, they've got a lot of breakdowns into milliseconds and it seems like a lot of that stuff is really uh Like really helpful, let you know if you have a particular resource that isn't being compressed, that should be compressed and that kind of stuff. So in terms of science, have you found that to be particularly useful or is it more the doing by hand like you were just saying?
0: Oh, uh, I mean, I, I use that tool. Uh, absolutely, I mean, I use a, a bunch of tools uh, that tool google Chrome console and I also just try and optimize um, just plain server response times so i 've got a a bunch of uh, tests that basically uh, record um, the res- the API response time from the server uh, and i 'll try and optimize that and the uh, what you can do is you, your tests run every time you deploy you can see if you 've added something that 's um, caused a significant increase in latency
1: the the thing that really strikes me is that a lot of this stuff really seems like it's not terribly hard to do and so I, I wonder a little bit why it's not more common knowledge
0: well th- there aren't that many resources out there which is why I wrote the post on it uh, Paul Irish is a, a ton on it um, uh, th- there, there's a, f- a few out there I'll try and find some for the the show notes. But you're right there's 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 not much information on there out there, even though it's fairly straightforward kind of information.
3: It seems like another thing is you can find parts of it
0: in different places. yeah, maybe maybe this is another book idea for O'Reilly <laughs>
1: <laughs> probably yeah, wouldn't hurt their feelings so uh, i'm I'm wondering if you could just walk us through the process of designing a website like this Sure. where you started and how you got to where you are.
0: Well, basically, I start off with Snatcher app. I have a, a, a few libraries that I pretty much include in every Snatcher app that I make. And, uh, and I will design the, uh, first design the models first, um, write a series of migrations. I use, uh, SQL, which is, um, uh, S-E-Q-U-E-L. It's an awesome O-R-M for Ruby. And, uh, I write those migrations, write the models, then I will write the API. Um, and then I will jump into the client side. Uh, I do all the designing for my apps uh, on the client side. Uh, I, I don't use a, a Photoshop or anything. I, I just tweak the CSS until uh, I like it. Um, and then basically what I will, I will try and split the app in my head into separate components. So you see for Monocle, you have the sidebar, and uh, then you have the main posts panel. Uh, and then the main post panel is, is separated as well. So you have um, comments there, and then you have uh, a description at the top of uh, the post. Uh, so I try and separate that all out in my mind, and then I will uh, write controllers with that in mind. So uh, everything, or I think in Backbone they're called views rather than controllers, but basically everything is split up. So you have the sidebar here. Uh, in Monocle. That actually doesn't know anything about the rest of the app. That's a purely uh, functional by itself. All it needs to know about really is the models. Um, and then the main page as well. Uh, you have the comment section that only knows about comments. It doesn't know about posts or anything else. Uh, and then there's uh, a tiny bit of high-level glue that ties everything together.
4: That's very interesting. So how are you getting the... uh the pieces to like coordinate and communicate, the pa- main, pa- main part on the right and the panel on the left, how are they coordinating with each other?
0: So uh, I do have a global state model, and that has a bunch of things in it. It has um, the currently selected uh, post, uh, and it also has the currently uh, logged in user. And so if anything wants to access global state, it can basically add an event listener onto those properties and uh, then basically re-render itself whenever those properties change. Gotcha. So you built the framework,
4: the MVC framework for this. Is this the only place that you've used that MVC framework?
0: This place and sourcing.io, which I I showed, uh, I just put a link to in the uh, show notes. Uh, those, Those are basically the only two places. And then I'm trying to separate, like I said, trying to separate out some of the nice things about it and push them back to Backbone.
1: So what is sourcing.io? I mean, you brought it up, so we may as well ask, right?
0: Uh, It's a a platform to source engineers. So if you're trying to hire engineers, then you can use it, and it will basically allow you to search engineers pretty easily. Um, And you can specify, I want Ruby engineers, I want Python engineers, I want engineers located in San Francisco with a score better than this. I want engineers that follow me on Twitter uh, I want engineers that have uh, uh, changed jobs in uh, in the last, uh, or a, a, uh, sorry, been at their jobs for about a year, that kind of thing. And uh, so basically, it'll give you this information, it'll, and it'll let you contact the engineers and um, uh, and try and hire them. And I'm basically with this. I'm trying to raise the bar with hiring. I mean, I'm sure all of you received those emails which are just uh, painful from recruiters, where they start off with hey, Alex, and then they have the rest of this boilerplate text about this job. Uh, they haven't like looked at your uh, profile or GitHub profile or anything. And then they end. the last sentence usually ends with, if you're not interested, please send on this job offer to all your friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like one of those crazy chain letters. Um, and, and so uh, I just want to try and raise the bar a little bit with recruiting. So this is a new startup that I'm working on.
1: That's really cool. I love getting those uh, those emails. In fact, I've been working on a blog post for a while. That's basically, uh, dear recruiter, here's why I <laughs> here's why I'm not responding or responding the way that I am. And yeah, it yeah. Anyway, it it does uh, kind of hark to some of the issues there with with those. But uh, it's really interesting. This is also fairly responsive. I mean, if if you scroll down on the endless scrolling, it does take it a second to load more records, but.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, there's only so so much you can preload because there's like a few million developers in there. And what I'm actually doing is uh, when you're scrolling, I'm cleaning up some of the other records further up uh, the view that are out that you can't currently see um, because otherwise you're just putting so many DOM nodes in the browser that it eventually crashes.
1: And how are you sourcing these uh, developers?
0: Oh, just. Uh, public information out there, um, their work, open source work, uh, their profiles on Stack Overflow, that kind of thing.
1: Huh. That's really interesting. Yeah.
4: So where do you get the inspiration for these uh, ideas? It, it was always kind of a, I hate this, so I'm going to do it better. Is that pretty much?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's mostly being really frustrated with the world and uh, and being naive enough to think that you can improve things.
4: And it also seems like Monocle was almost like, I mean, obviously what you're trying to do by getting rid of, or replacing Hacker News is something with a more positive environment is great, but it almost is like you made up that idea just so you could have this study and performance.
0: Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I mean, like I say, I love reinventing the wheel, so th- this is how I've ever, you know, learned anything new, It's basically setting myself a project um, and uh, basically coming up against walls and trying to overcome uh, those obstacles. So,
4: what would you say are the major things that you didn't know that you learned while building monocle?
0: Oh well it's definitely the performance um, is is one of them. I actually developed this uh, new framework building it as well, and then there's the sidebar as building a a, a working sidebar with keyboard shortcuts is actually kind of tricky because the sidebar needs to scroll, but if the main area needs to have focus then when when you press up and down. Arrows that needs to scroll as well, so you've got to have you've got to have active areas uh, in mind, and then you also got to when you scroll the sidebar with the uh, arrow keys, you've got to keep the currently selected um, uh, post in view. Uh, and again, that is, is is fairly tricky to do. Um, so those th- those kind of little techniques that are kind of pretty useful, whichever whatever it's just a useful pattern, whatever whatever you're building, there's the kind of things that I learned building Monocle.
4: Interesting. But it seemed like you already knew it. I don't know. I got the impression based on how performant Monica was, that you already knew a ton about performance, but you kind of said, well, performance was the thing that I learned indicating that, that wasn't already an area of expertise for you.
0: Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I, I knew a bit about it because uh, I, I wrote a chapter on it uh, for the Irani book, but there's, uh, there's always more stuff to learn. Well, that that's certainly
4: true. So Of the things that you learned about performance, was there anything that you found particularly surprising while building Monocle?
0: Well, that you can solve SEO so easily. I I never really um, knew about that. And uh, when it comes to performance, most of the things, like you say, are fairly straightforward. Uh, For me, uh, most of the optimizations that I didn't know about uh, resided in the Ruby stack. And using a uh, a Ruby server that... um, uh, was multi-processed uh, because the Ruby has a global interpreter. Uh, Ruby has a global interpreter lock, and it'll it'll lock up whenever uh, you uh, access uh, the interpreter. So basically, nothing can happen in parallel, even if you have threads. So it was to do with little optimizations about choosing Unicorn instead of Thin, choosing a really good database driver, trying to optimize the backend. And for me. Pers- Specifically, was what I uh, you know most learned on on Monocle. Gotcha.
1: Well, I'm not sure I have any more questions for you. Uh, I'm I'm I am going to go and dig into some of this stuff and see what's there. And I would I would love to see what you're doing with uh, Sinatra and Redis to to load all that up and make it all work. There's there isn't any chance you're going to open source Monocle, is there?
0: Actually, yeah, I was thinking of open sourcing it. Um, I think that'll happen next week. Oh, nice! Very cool.
1: Then I can go read it and feel smarter. <laughs> so is there anything else we should know about uh, making websites performant or Monocle or sourcing.io or any anything else that we've talked about today?
0: Uh, not specifically that I can think of. Uh, I just want to thank you guys for having me on. It's always uh, a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, well, this has kind of got me fired up, so
0: <laughs> I'm really excited. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. That's, that's exactly why I come on these kind of things.
1: Yeah, and I've been playing with this page speed thing for the last... 20 minutes while we're talking, and there there's a lot of good stuff in here. Holy cow. Um, like, I pulled up a website that I've been working on for a while, and uh, it says leverage browser caching, and then it, you know, it tells me all the files that are not uh, cached that don't have the expiration headers in them, and, you know, eliminate render blocking, and, and it, you know, if you uh, drill down into it, it tells you what to do to fix it, and it's just, it, it's really cool, so...
0: It really is. And it's great that Google is, is investing so heavily in, uh, in speed. Uh, I mean, it even affects your page ranking now. They, they, they really, really think it's, it's crucial. And it, and it really, really, uh, hurts conversion if you have a slow website. It's basically one of the, the, the biggest, um, performance gains you can get in, opt, uh, in conversion is just trying to make things fast. Hmm.
1: Yeah, con- conversion you mean as far as like being able to sell whatever you're selling on your website?
0: Yeah, that's right. Like uh Google found out that uh that if you they they just had like an extra uh 100 milliseconds of latency on every search result that uh, they had significantly less um uh click throughs.
1: 100 milliseconds is what you said? Yeah. So if the page comes up in more than 100 milliseconds,
0: uh, if the page takes uh, 100, second, 100 milliseconds more than it would originally. It, basically, they had a bunch of tests, and some of which slowed down the um, the page uh, to try and detect uh, the the impact of page speed on conversion.
2: So if that's true, then why is it that when I click on Google search results, it redirects me to their analytics thing that takes for freaking ever before it redirects me to the actual site? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I I actually completely agree. Um unfortunately that's basically the only way of detecting a click uh through because if you try and uh you basically uh detect it by the usual methods like say put a uh a, an image uh one one by one pixel image on the page or however you usually detect it. That image probably won't load because the pa- the the page is redirecting. So the only way you can really uh, detect uh, if someone has clicked on an external link is uh, is either to delay them like a few hundred milliseconds while your analytics uh, image is loading or to do the redirect.
2: Yeah, I, I understand why they do it. I I think there's probably, well, I, they've probably searched every opportunity and found that that's the best one, and that's why they do it that way. But it really does annoy me that sometimes it's quicker to just highlight the URL that comes up and paste it in than it is to click on it because their analytics has certain probably like peak times of day where it just, you know, takes full seconds for it to do the redirect. It's not even the fault of the page on the other end.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. It's, it's super annoying. Well, one of the things actually I do with Monocle that I, um, uh, I forgot to so now is I actually pre-render the, the, uh, article. So, um, if you're, if you have an external article in there and you look at it for more than three seconds, I add this tag to the page, which tells Google Chrome to go and fetch that external article, pre-render it and get it ready. So when you click on the link, it, uh, just, the article shows up immediately. Huzzah.
2: Yeah, you know, and it seems like since Google controls Chrome, and Chrome is maybe the primary browser these days, I mean, aside from the pirated copies in China and, you know, the ones that are in the bank where they only have two sites they can visit anyway, whether, you know, got an Internet Explorer. But it seems like they could probably do that analytics tracking in Chrome, just like Chrome extensions do, without having to slow you down.
0: Uh, That's true, but I, I, and they probably do that anyway, to be honest.
1: Interesting. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Um, Thanks for coming, Alex. I really appreciate it. We'll we'll get to the picks, and then uh, we'll be done. AJ, do you want to start us off with picks?
2: Sure. So there's just some cool stuff. When we were talking about insights and uh, some of those other tools – um, I posted a bunch of links in the chat, so hopefully those make it up. but Google does have a lot of cool tools, um, including microformats, which is you'll notice sometimes when you do a Google search like you'll see a picture and you'll see like the um, you might see the tabs broken down into different links underneath the item's name. So anyway, there's there's things that you can do with your HTML to put little, special classes in there and whatnot to let Google and other search engines know that this is this this data has meaning. It's not just for a wireframe or for presentation. So check out those links. And then I ordered an Uya back when they were on Kickstarter and I finally actually got it because it it actually shipped to my old work because I didn't have time to update the address information and everything, and then it went to my friend at work, and then eventually it made it back to me. So I got that set up, like, last week. And uh, I I have to sadly say that the console in of itself is pretty unimpressive. I bought four controllers for it, and there's only about two multiplayer games that I could find that were of interest. But I do have to say that Towerfall is really fun it's it's basically like nintendo style graphics super smash brothers is kind of what the game is and that's really fun and also you can run emulators on it so you can play your super nintendo games and everything off of an sd card and it's pretty easy to i guess it's called side load which is basically where you put the android apk on the sd card and then load it that way instead of getting it from the store um, so they've got that like built in. There's a little function that lets you do that. And so, so my 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 second pick here would be the Ouya. But then that leads to me to my third pick, which is Final Fantasy VII. Because when I was younger, uh, I'm like talking elementary school here. I had this friend who had the game, but every time that some girl that he liked that he brought over would flirt with me which was every time because he was always super aggressive and I was always like, whatever, I don't care. He would erase the memory card and I would lose my game save. So I'm finally beating Final Fantasy VII for the first time ever. Well, that I'm going to make it all the way to the finish and I'm super excited about that and it's such a great game and a great story. That's so. the
4: uh, saddest story I've ever heard, but not for the reason you think. <laughs> well, well, why is it the saddest story? It's just kind of a pitiful story about you and being a teenager.
2: No, I was not a teenager yet. This was like. Oh, preteen? Yeah, this, this was literally probably like third or fourth grade. I don't remember. 1997, I think, <laughs> is when that game came out. So I was young, young, young back then. But I'm finally, thanks to the Ouya emulator, FPSE is the one I'm using. And I got a couple tweaks on it so it re renders the graphics so they don't look like absolutely wretchedly pixelated. Anyway, done with Rafe.
1: All right. Joe, what are your picks?
4: All right, so I've got two picks. The first one is a musician. Um, The band name, I guess, is Sun Lounger. It's just kind of like this quiet, relaxed mix of music. One of their playlists on um, Spotify is called The Chill Out Mix. So I've just been really enjoying that, watching or listening to Sun Lounger while I program. It's been perfect music. Not too boring that it puts me to sleep, but not too exciting that it distracts me from work. So I'm going to pick that one. Um, I also want to pick, uh, on my second to last day at Domo, I won a Pebble Watch from uh, a programming competition, uh, or Hack Night. And I've been, i picked that up to my phone, and it notifies me every time I get an email or a text, or when I get a phone call, and I have absolutely loved it. Although I've learned that I' am now way too connected, and so I actually I take it off while I work <laughs> so that I don't get disrupted nearly as easily as I was when I was wearing it, but it's been an awesome awesome watch and I would also like to uh, put out a reminder about ngconf we had our early bird sale on Monday and tickets sold out in about ten seconds, which was absolutely crazy so by the time this podcast gets put out, the second round of slightly discounted tickets will have gone on sale and. Based on the interest, will probably also sell out in ten seconds. So I'm excited for NG Comp, and I'm excited to be part of that.
1: Didn't you also open up your call for proposals?
4: Yeah, we did. We opened up a call for proposals. It should be open till the end of September. So by the time this gets published, there'll be a little bit of time left to submit um, papers for the call for proposals. Yep, so- and we are. I think we're really looking for somebody that wants that uh, can talk about Angular and Node, and somebody who can talk about Angular and Rail- with Rails. So those are two talks that are we're having f- trouble finding people that can present on.
1: Good to know. All right. Well, um I've got uh, just one pick. The book, book Book Yourself Solid by Michael Port. Um, if you're a freelancer or service provider, it is an excellent book about uh, marketing and sales. I've really, really been enjoying it. We're actually going to be interviewing Michael next week on the Freelancer Show about the book, doing a book club. So if you're interested in that, if you're a freelancer, then keep an eye out for that on The Freelancer Show, and that's at freelancershow.com. And uh, that's all I got. So, uh, Alex, what are your picks?
0: So I have two picks. Uh, The first is this project by Google called Coda, and it's googlecreativelab.github.io slash coda. And uh, it's pretty awesome. It it basically is uh, some uh, firmware for the Raspberry Pi and uh it lets you uh code uh in JavaScript um an HTML uh and straight on this uh Raspberry Pi. So you can have this basically Arduino like device and you can code it easily with JavaScript. Uh so that's a pretty uh awesome little project. The other one I have which is kind of just for fun, is something called the Ig Noble Prizes. And these are basically like the Nobel Prizes, but they're the um the ones that didn't make the, uh, the take, they're, they're kind of the funny ones. And you can find them, like the prize win, winners on Wikipedia. But there's some uh, amazing, amazing awards here. Uh, given uh, some, some of the hilarious ones, like for, for the prize in 2012 for physics was um, to Robin Ball for calculating the forces that shape and move the hair in a human ponytail. And there is uh, one in psychology why uh, the study for li- why leaning to the left makes the Eiffel Tower seem smaller. There's like the- these these uh, these things go on and on, and they're all hilarious.
1: Awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Alex. It's been really, really interesting discussion. Yeah. Oh,
0: thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, well, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week.